afternoon, everyone. Welcome down to the lecture theatre, which, given the numbers, is probably just as well. So, uh, very good to see uh, so many of you here. Uh, and I'm delighted this afternoon uh, we've got Rachel with us. Rachel Osborne is managing uh, editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Uh, Rachel started her career as a finance reporter, then she worked at the Mail on Sunday for a number of years before moving to the Bureau uh, uh, two or three years ago? Seven years ago. Seven years ago. <laughs> Seven years ago. Uh, she's been uh, managing editor for a couple of years. Um, so she's uh, going to be talking to us about how we make an impact in the 24-7 digital world. So Rachel, thank you very much. Thanks Richard. Um, so yes, welcome everybody. Um, I'm going to talk for about 30 minutes and um, then I'm going to open up to Q&A, which I hope will be more of a discussion because I'm really keen to hear your thoughts and to get your perspectives from um, your own countries. Um, but when I first was asked to do this about two months ago and to come up with a title, um, I was thinking, okay, so what should I talk about? And the thing that was obsessing me at the time was um, how we as an organisation make an impact. And we're a totally impact-driven organisation, and it's a constant thing that goes around our head, and the big problem was making an impact in the 24-7 world. But actually, two months on, and um, w there is a new obsession on the horizon, which I'm sure you guys are just as obsessed as, as we all are, um, the invasion of fake news. Yeah, the post-truth world, a term that has only just been defined in the last few months. Um, it seems like it's literally happened overnight. Of course, fake news and propaganda is nothing new, but the actual scale of the problem now is, is just so vast, and it is causing a problem. Um, how on earth do we get our stories heard when there's so many untruths out there on the internet? Um, you know, we know the examples, uh, Hillary Clinton selling weapons to ISIS, um, Pope Francis endorsing uh, Trump, um, and the latest, the fact that there was more people at um, Obama's inauguration than um, turned up to Trump's inauguration, or at least that's my alternative facts. Um, and the problem is, is that this fake news really is getting readers, as we're all aware. Um, some research by BuzzFeed suggested that the two stories that I mentioned, the ISIS story and the um, Trump story, um, they gained together two million engagements on social media. Um, a really top story in the New York Times um, gets between 350,000 and 400,000 engagements on social media. And the problem is that these numbers make money. So this man, you may have read about him in the New York Times. He's called Cameron Harris. He lives in Maryland. He's a very smart young man, as you can see. He's a graduate who finished college with huge debts. Um, he was looking for a way of paying off his debts. In my day, you'd go and do a bit of waitressing. Um, now you write a fake news story on the web. And if, you write, if you're good at writing it, and you're good at engaging numbers, you collect a lot of revenue, as he did with this story, which... Um, became, went viral. Breaking news, tens of thousands of fraudulent Clinton votes found in a Ohio warehouse. Well, actually, you know, he's done it really well. It looks like a proper story. He's even got a picture. He's got a guy who discovered these supposed fraudulent votes. But actually, this picture was taken a few miles down the road from here in Birmingham. Not, nothing to do with Ohio. <coughs> um, 
And you, I'm sure you saw the um, BuzzFeed story about the fake news warehouses in Macedonia, which were also making money. And of course, it's not just about money. It's also about fake news has been used to build support for um, political parties, as we saw in um, the Donald Trump election. Um, one site, AmericanMilitaryNews.com, claimed that Donald Trump in 1991 had used his private plane to go and rescue a bunch of Marines. Well, you know, completely false, but a very good thing for his reputation. Um, and if these stories are gaining traffic, it's a huge problem for bona fide journalism, i.e. aka true stories, to actually get engaged. It's even, you know, even if we have the problem of 24-7 internet, we now have the problem of uh, fiction posed as facts. Um, but I don't want to talk endlessly about fake news, although I probably could, and I'm sure it'll come up in the discussion. I'll be really interested to get your views. Because um, there's, I think, a lot more insidious things going on that we are, that are less in the headlines that we, as journalists, need to think about. Um, but first, perhaps we should ask, why does it matter? You know, why does it matter whether our stories actually make an impact? Well, journalism has a long tradition going back centuries and centuries, um, probably as old as this lovely college, um, of making things, of holding, holding power to account and helping citizens to understand the world they live in and making a difference. You know, we all know there's so many examples. You know, I've picked out a few. Um, Watergate, the thalidomide story in the Sunday Times, the um, Spotlight team on the Boston Globe, I'm sure we've all seen the film. Um, a story that my organisation, the Bureau, is very proud of. We've been tracking drone strikes and the use of drones as a, a counter-terrorism tool in places like Pakistan, Yemen and Somalia. And this was a story when we first started on it five years ago. Nobody was, it was an unreported story. Nobody was really aware of these strikes that were happening in these remote parts of the world. There just weren't reporters reporting on them. Um, and the US line was that these were um, very precise strikes that only killed alleged terrorists. Um, actually, when we started looking at it, there was lots of civilians being killed too. I mean, hundreds of civilians being killed. Um, but this was a story that was going unreported. Five years later, um, things have changed because in, in a large part because of our reporting. And now, actually, drone strikes in these parts of the world have got Ye Yemen, questionable, but certainly Pakistan, they have become much more precise, and the number of civilian um, deaths have dropped quite significantly. So if we take it as read that the reason we all do journalism is to make a difference, and the reason why proper journalism is so important is to have an impact and to change the world, then we do have a massive problem in our world, not just because of fake, fake news. Um, we have a problem of being heard in the cacophony of the internet, where 24-7 news often knocks off, current events often knock off the top slot really important stories. And this is a problem not just for minnows like the Bureau, but it's also a problem for big, vast papers like the Washington Post. Um, so you may have heard of this story because you're all working journalists, but this was a really important story published on September the 20th by the Washington Post, by um, David Farenthold, who is probably one of the best political investigative reporters at the moment. And he had spent weeks and weeks 
looking into trans charities. Um, and one of the stories he published was a story about um, Trump's charities using money to pay off debts in his for-profit, or legal problems in his for-profit businesses. Um, it was weeks before the election. It should have been a story that really properly engaged with the American media at a much wider level. Well, unfortunately, something came along a couple of hours later, which knocked it not just off the headlines, but banished it from social media. One of the world's most best-known couples, these two, decided to announce their divorce. And this became the sensation of the moment. Um, and that's the problem. You know, we, get, we can get our news constantly, 24-7. We can get it as we're walking down the road. We can learn about an earthquake as it's happening. We can watch an avalanche as it's taking over an Italian village. We can find out what's happening in, to the celebrities of the world. And you know what? Why do we really want to read about depressing things and terrible things that our government is doing when we can read about much more fluffy things? Um, and the irony is, of course, that actually people are reading news more than they've ever read before, despite the problems of the news media and tumbling revenues, actually circulations are going up massively. So the Guardian newspaper, for example, has an online circulation of nearly 8 million daily readers. This is vastly bigger than the 500,000 copies it used to sell in its, in its heyday. Um, but, you know, it too struggles with getting its most important stories read and engaged. And then we have the echo chamber effect, of course. The Facebook that we have that most people get their news through their friends, through things that, that people um, that believe the same thing. So this is, a, this is a problem that at the Bureau we, we grapple with all the time. How, as a very small organisation, without a massive big publishing platform, how on earth do we get our stories out there? And how on earth, when we're an impact-driven organisation, how on earth do we make sure that our stories um, properly change things? Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things that we have done and how we try and cope in this new 24-7 world. But first, I thought I'd tell you a little bit more about our organisation. Um, we were launched in 2010. We are a not-for-profit journalistic organisation. Um, we're completely foundation, philanthropically funded. We are a team of 14 people, um, including journalists, editors, data specialists. We even have a reporter in Kabul. Um, we are part of a new sector of journalism, which in the US is a really big sector. These are some of the bigger names that you might recognize, ProPublica, the Marshall Project, the Center for Public Integrity, the Center for Investigative Reporting. In fact, there are 150 not-for-profit journalistic organizations in the US. And you know, the, the bigger names such as these, they, they have really quite big newsrooms now. ProPublica and the Center for Investigative Journalism, they have staff of about 100 people. You know, they're starting to look like small newspapers in terms of their size. In the UK, uh, the, it, 
it's a very, very small, very fragile sector. We have a very different attitude to philanthropy than to the US. Um, we have a much more robust press. We have the BBC, uh, which is seen as the organisation that does our public interest journalism. But nonetheless, the Bureau has continued, has, was launched seven years ago. It's still in it, very much in existence. We are growing and we are seeing other organisations setting themselves up in this country that are also not-for-profit. And increasingly in Europe as a whole and increasingly in the world, there is now quite a community of not-for-profit journalistic organisations. And we all, set, we all sort of have the same purpose in life. This is our mission. Through fact-based, unbiased reporting, we expose systemic wrongs. We counter misinformation and then ultimately spark change. We tell the stories that matter. Um, but as I say, we've got to work out how we get our stories out there. We have a platform. We, we have our own website. But because we do investigative journalism, our stories will take weeks, often months, to actually get to the bottom, bottom of. So we just don't have the level of output um, that brings in a decent-sized audience. I mean, we do have an audience. We do have good social following. But it's not enough to for our stories to go viral. So we have to think about other means. The buzzword of the moment in journalism, collaboration. Um, we have always worked in partnership with other publishing outlets. These are some of the stories we've published in the last few months. We see we've worked with the Sunday Times, the Daily Mail, the Guardian, and um, the, the Sunday, I think that's the Sunday Mirror. Yeah, the Sunday Mirror. We've also worked in the past few months with the Daily Beast. Um, we've worked with a Telegraph, um, we've worked with a Danish paper. So we do the journalism, we get the story, and then we go to bigger players that have platforms that will help push out our story. And this really does help. It helps to bring readers into our stories too. So, for example, um, we did a story, this story in The Guardian, for example, that... Um, on the Guardian received 12,000 shares and 800 comments on the Guardian pages compared to ours was 3,000 shares and about 15 comments. So, you know, our scale is much smaller, but if we use a big, if we collaborate with a big platform, it means that we can get our stories out to the readers. Um, the story we did with the Daily Beast received 500,000 um, reads in the first 24 hours on our platform it received about 80,000 so again just really massively helping to push out our stories and we always we really try to work with a number of partners and not just have a preferred partner because we really try to choose the platform that best will that will best work for the story so if it's a story like the one we did in the Daily Mail that was very aimed at a consumer audience it was about a uh, financial, or an international financial scam that was really affecting the type, of read, the, the type of people that read the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail has a very strong financial section. Um, they wrote an incredibly strong editorial calling on our government to change the laws so that um, these scams could, you know, basically were banned from the UK. Um, so that really helped our journalism. Another thing we do is we keep reporting. I already mentioned our drone work. And this is a story that we started reporting on 
five years ago. And when we first started reporting the story, actually our publishing partner pulled out at the last minute, literally 24 hours before we were going to publish the story. Um, we ended up self-publishing and we had, the story was read by 700 people. You know, it was six months worth of work of a team of three people working with reporters in Pakistan, a story that we thought was incredibly important and 700 people read it. And it, was, it followed some really, really amazingly big, successful stories, a story that we'd had on um, the BBC Panorama, a story that we'd had um, on Dispatches and Channel 4, um, a story that we'd worked on um, with Le Monde in France. So to have a story that only got 700 readers was like, oh my goodness, what do we do about this? And one of the first thoughts was, okay, well, we just stop reporting this story. We just move on, find something else that's going to have a hit. Um, in the end, it was a really tough decision, but in the end we decided that it was a really important area and part of what we had discovered in our six months worth of work was that nobody was reporting this story at all. Um, so we felt that we just had to keep going at it. And it took about a year of constant reporting on the subject and constant reporting on drone strikes by the CIA and who they were killing and how frequent they were and um, the type of buildings versus cars that they were hitting and how they were being used and negotiations between the Pakistan government and the US. So, you know, lots of stories, um, but we seem to be publishing into this complete wilderness. And then, as I say, after about a, a year, we started to see that our stories started to get picked up. Um, by big brands like Reuters and AP and the New York Times and then the LL Times and Washington Post and CNN. And now our, now our work is um, reported on almost on a daily basis by a big international brand. Um, I think it happened because we just kept writing the story and we built up a huge mass of work. So eventually when another journalist came to look at this area, um, and campaigners came to look at this area, they could come to our massive work and it felt that it wasn't just a one-off piece of reporting, but there was a solid, huge amount of evidence and data and stories and investigation which gave them confidence to report our story. And we're starting to do that more and more. In fact, you know, that, that was the success of the, the, um, the Middleside story that I mentioned earlier. It was campaigning journalism, journalism that went on over months and months, years and years, and then finally made a difference. Um, we don't do campaigning journalism that much these days. And I think that is, again, the obsession with 24-7. We go, we report a story, the world moves on, another major event happens, we send millions of reporters down to report that event. Then another earthquake happens, we send another huge amount of reporters. We don't look at a subject and keep on it and keep campaigning on it. Another thing we do, and this is a new one for us, and it's something we're really working on, is we try to build a community around our work. So we try to reach out to the people that our story will matter to. So one of the big areas that we're taking on at the moment is antibiotic resistance. Again, a massively underreported subject. Um, we're probably aware of the problem of using too many antibiotics and what, what that does to bacteria, what it is doing to bacteria and how it, they're increasingly becoming resistant. 
Um, it's a huge concern in the medical profession. But as journalistically, it's quite complicated. It's very scientific. Um, the drugs have very long names that I can never remember and, you know, uh, readers don't really engage with. So there isn't very much investigative journalism going in this area at all. So again, it's a subject we're going to stick at, but we're also trying to build the community around it. So um, biologists and um, uh, doctors that understand this, and if we can build the community and we can provide them with evidence, if we can provide them with journalism, it will help them to tell the world the story. So we have a special Twitter account, we have a blog, we um, run live events, and we, we obviously do the investigations which we publish um, with big papers. So one of the ones I put up was The Guardian, that was one of our antibiotic stories. Um, on a similar vein, we also try to ensure that our stories get to the people who can make things change. Um, so this was a, the piece of work that we had done on um, affordable housing in the UK. We have a huge problem with affordable housing in the UK. It's basically no longer being built. We sold it all off in the 80s, and then we stopped building it, which means that we have huge waiting lists of people desperate for homes. We have families living in bread and breakfast places. And one of the problems... Um, the work that we did looked at how developers agree to build a certain number of homes and then at the last minute, despite the fact that that was part of the planning permission, they pull back and they just say, actually, we can't afford to build those homes anymore. And they go to the council and go, well, we can build you all these lovely homes, you need these homes, but we can't build you any affordable. And they go, fine. So we did two years worth of work on this, lots and lots of reporting. Again, nothing seemed to be happening. Our stories were being published in The Guardian, they were being published in The Independent. We had a piece on the BBC. So, you know, we, did, we followed our plan to publish with big partners, get the word out. Um, we built up a community, we had lots of people tweeting, we had lots of campaigners working with us, but still nothing seemed to be happening and there was no change. So we decided to take the story to Parliament um, and we held a meeting in the Houses of Parliament. We brought councillors, um, in fact the man sat in the middle is now the Mayor's housing um, advisor. Um, we brought, so we brought councillors who knew the matter, we brought campaigners, and we invited MPs and politicians into the meeting. And we had a packed meeting of 90 people. And they started to listen. And, you know, the Mayor of London has become very concerned about this issue. We did another one on an area of work we did on a, a, it's a very UK law called Joint Enterprise. It's a very um, specialist law that allows our government, allows our, um, sorry, our, our police to prosecute um, gang crime effectively, but lots of people were getting caught up in this prosecution that, and being given huge long sentences um, when they were on the periphery of the crime. And again, we did lots of reporting. Our work was covered in the BBC, it was covered in the Times, it was covered in the Guardian. Um, and again, nothing seemed to change. Nobody seemed to be listening. So again, we took it to the Houses of Parliament, um, held a debate, and then the Justice Select Committee decided on the back of our debate that they needed to hold an inquiry. Um, they held an inquiry. Um, eventually, this led to a legal change at the Supreme Court. Um, another thing we do is 
we try to work on storytelling. And again, this is quite a new thing for us and quite a hard thing for investigative journalists to do because um, we have, as I say, we have about 14 people working for us. They're all hardcore investigative journalists. They know how to go and get lots of evidence. They know how to persuade people to go and get, um, to give them documents. They know how to persuade um, authorities to talk to them off the record and on the record. They dig and dig. They know how to use spreadsheets. They know how to use big data things, but they don't know how to put two words together. Um, that should probably stay in this room. Um, so, you know, it is quite hard. It's quite a specialism to be able to write very neatly and very elegantly about a piece of work that you have been working on for six months and you have gone down many, many rabbit holes. You forget what is the most important bit of that story? What is the bit of the story that the readers will care about? Um, and obviously that is part of the job of the editors, to help them. Um, and so we have put more resource into the editing side and we put more resource into trying to tell our stories in a more engaging fashion. Anyway, basically, this is a story we did um, about an incredibly controversial uh, UK PR firm. Um, called Bell Pottinger, that does incredibly controversial work. And we discovered that they had gained a contract with the uh, US Pentagon for, well, we put it at 500 million US dollars because that's what we could document, that's what we had documents for. Um, we know it was definitely probably double that. Um, and at the height of the Iraq war, they were employed um, in the heart of the US intelligence team in Baghdad to produce fake news. So, say, fake news is not yet new. Um, and they were putting out stories, um, propaganda stories, that were meant to look like local news. And they were doing it at a vast scale. Um, they were also putting out um, false flags. So they were reporting on stories that were put onto uh, disks, because this was obviously um, be uh, bef before... Um, We'd moved on to really big digital technology. So they're putting it on disks, which Marines, when they did raids, would go and distribute around the streets of Baghdad and around Iraq. And then a, and they were made to look like terrorist videos. So they would know that if somebody picked up one of these disks, they had secret tracking software on the disks, they put it into their computer, started to play the video, and then that allowed an intelligence officer to find out exactly where that person was. Now, that obviously is quite a nice thing if they're in Iraq, but what happens if they're in America? That suddenly produces a lot of very good intelligence. Um, so we thought this was an incredibly good story. Um, it had taken six months of work. We actually had a whistleblower who'd worked on this. We had lots of documentation that we had gathered about the contract. Um, but you know, we've had to think how on earth we were going to tell this, this quite um, complex story. So we first of all decided one of the ways we could do it was to use amazing images. Well, it doesn't immediately, um, doesn't immediately um, bring images to mind, but we went and found some really beautiful images just of the Iraq war. Um, we put it into a software package that, if I could show you, actually looks really lovely. It looks like a very engaging story. It makes you want to read it. Doesn't look like it's going to be a very dense story. And then we also used video. We used audio. So there was lots of um, there was lots of other media within the story. We had the whistleblower talking on tape, which we used. Um, 
So again, we spent an awful lot of time thinking about how we were going to get that story packaged up in a way that would properly engage the reader. And this is something that is really new to us, because as I say, investigative journalists, it's not really the bit that they think about. They think about doing the work. They don't really think about the next step, about how to get their stories out. And for a very small organisation, that is quite a lot of investment to spend all that time on trying to package your story. But again, in this day and age, we have to think about packaging. We have to think about social media. So, you know, the tape that we did of the whistleblower was incredibly good social media engagement material that we could put out onto Facebook, that we could use um, Daily Beast. Was, this was a story we published at the Daily Beast. They used it as one of their um, main videos of the day that brought in lots of readers and lots of eyeballs. Um, and just to mention one other thing, which we're not doing, but I think is so innovative, it really is worth a mention. The Center for Investigative Reporting in America, one of the things they do is they actually turn their journalism into plays. So they work with a theater company who takes their journalism and works with the journalists as they are doing their investigation. Um, so it's a very, it's not a normal piece of theater. They have a writer who writes based very firmly on evidence. Every single thing is very carefully scripted and very carefully thought about so that none of it is fictionalized. Um, and at the end, when they are ready to go um, and publish their story, they also put on a play. And that, again, brings in a completely new audience and completely different way of engaging their journalism. So I think I've reached my 30 minutes, a little bit over, but not too bad. Um, so I hope that that's given you some thoughts and ideas. Um, I'd really like to hear, as I say, um, from you about um, your perspective of getting readership, getting impact, and how things work in your countries. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Thank you.